0: How many children have to die senselessly at the hands of a gun before U.S. politicians actually wake up and address the uniquely American problem of gun violence? Ask yourself this question. Are we really prepared to settle for the death of children being the cost of freedom and Political power? We're not even 200 days into the year, and there have already been over 212 mass shootings in America, 27 of which have come at schools. And according to the Giffords Law Center, to prevent gun violence, approximately 38 So 44,000 Americans die of gun violence every year. So what's it going to take to protect both kids, the second amendment, and to bring some common sense to the gun debate? One woman with some concrete answers is Robin Thomas. Thomas serves as the executive director of the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. And she took some time out of her schedule to join me this week to address the gun violence epidemic in America and how we can curb this troubling trend. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this... CONVERSATION But, Robin, if you're ready, I'll take a moment to welcome you to the program, and I'm very uh, excited to talk to you about uh, the consequential issue of gun violence and how we sort of curb the troubling trend. Good to uh, see you uh, this morning, and thanks so very much uh, for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out and inviting me to come on. It's really nice to talk to different audiences. And I really enjoy these longer format conversations because it can get a little deeper. I do, you know, a fair amount of like news shows and stuff, and it's short. It's just, you know, three or four minutes. So it's hard to really go deeply into um, the content, which hopefully we can have a little more time for today.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, Robin, I was just uh, sharing with you before we hopped on to the call that this is a uniquely American problem, you know, there's been, I think, 212 mass shootings, and we're not even uh, 200 days into the year, so I'm curious to first ask you about Commenting on how this is a uniquely American problem, and you know, the inaction of of the US Senate to do something about gun violence.
1: So, I mean, I think we have a couple of things at play that sort of influence where we are right now one is that we do have an absolutely astounding number of guns in private hands in this country we have we think we don't have like exact numbers because it's not registered or anything but we have about 400 million guns in private hands in the United States, and that is just makes it very easy for guns to fall into the hands of people who uh, are in a time of crisis and present a risk to themselves or others, um, or to get in the hands of those intent on doing harm. so you know we have just too many guns, and there's no requirement that they be you know stored safely or, or kept carefully to be um, sort of you know regulated internally at least in a way that is that enhances safety. The second problem we have is we have an industry, and this isn't the only industry that this is the case for. You know the oil and gas industry, and there's others that fall into this category. But certainly, when it comes to the gun manufacturers, um, they've really done you know, I have to sort of grudgingly acknowledge a good job of capturing our government. You know, they leverage the NRA as this organization that purports to represent gun owners, but actually the NRA represents the gun industry, um, And they're very aggressive lobbyists and they've been putting a lot of money and a lot of effort into lobbying in Washington DC for a long time. And really a lot of these Republican senators are in their pocket, you know, they sit in the pocket of the manufacturers and the NRA and they do their bidding, and unless and until you know voters in their states Decide that that's not something they're willing to put up with, they're going to keep doing it because they just don't have enough incentive on the other side. And I think they leverage it to activate a very small base. Um, You know, there certainly are single issue voters on this, you know, topic that in some, you know, red states and some Republican states, they can really activate by threatening their gun rights, threatening their safety. You know, the language is so interesting when you open up an NRA publication and see how they talk to their base. It's very much, you know, the sky is falling and you have to rely on yourself. And the only way you're going to be safe is to buy more guns. Um, And so they really play on people's fear and paranoia and use it to sell guns and line their pockets. And this is the problem in this country. We have this lobby. We have this industry that doesn't care about the lives and safety of Americans. And they manipulate people's fear um, to push the sales of more guns. And and there isn't enough that we're doing to counter that narrative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to that point, there's been, I think, 27 uh, school shootings in America, uh, and we're not even done half the year. And you know, I'm just gonna be very blunt with you, Robin, and ask you how many. I can't have to die before the GOP actually does something about gun violence.
1: You know, when the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School happened in 2012, I thought that was going to be the tipping point. I've been in this job for 16 years. So, you know, I was already sitting in the seat 10 years ago when that happened. And I thought, well, this is it. You know, 20 school children, first graders killed in their classroom. there's no way that the parents in this country, that the moms, that the um, that the public is going to accept that this is what we have to live with. And they're, they're going to force you know, our elected officials to take action. And that didn't happen. Now, people get really despondent when they hear about that. But I always want to emphasize that even though we didn't get federal change at that time, we did get change at the state level. So since the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, we've seen more than 450 laws passed at the state level. Um, many states have passed you know, dozens of new laws, gun violence continues to go down in a number of states. So we didn't see progress at the federal level, but we did see a lot of progress in other places after Sandy Hook. We also now have politicians in this country. We have our sort of Republican you know, senators who do nothing. But on the other hand, we're seeing a lot of candidates who are now running on a gun safety platform and they're winning. And that's relatively new. That's not something you saw happening before Sandy Hook. So dozens and dozens and dozens of candidates at both the federal and state and local level, including in their platforms, a commitment to gun safety and they're winning. And I think, you know, that political calculation of how this issue you know plays out is really important because that's how you sort of push for change legislatively is to make sure that you know they care about keeping their their elected seats. So if they think that um, they're not going to get away with it with with not addressing this issue, with not implementing change, then you know, and they're going to be, you know, pushed out of their seats, they're going to, you know, lose the next election, then that motivates them. So that has changed. Now it hasn't changed quite enough at the Senate level to get what we want, but it is changing in a lot of ways, you know, that that tell me uh, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah,
0: incremental progress is, is terrific, but I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you would agree with me for any of these uh, parents who have to bury their kids, you know, thoughts and prayers uh, are ring hollow, you know, when you're faced with the grim reality of, of burying your kid, and you know, you, you just have to turn on the news, and you hear the talking points from Republicans about how this is mental health, and uh, how we have to arm teachers, and do more to arm a uh, uh, law enforcement to prevent this. But when you really look at the issue, uh, they were they were armed guards both at the uh, mass shooting in Buffalo and the one in Newvalley the other day. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you uh, can, can tell me how uh, flawed you think the argument is uh, from the GOP when when they bring up those a familiar uh, talking point.
1: Well, back to sort of your original comment about thoughts and prayers, it's not just rings hollow, it's infuriating. Um, You know, for those parents, for myself, I have children in school um, worried about their safety doing lockdown drills. Thoughts and prayers is an insult. It's disgusting that they're elected to lead this country and to protect at a minimum the safety of our children in schools. And all they have to offer in the face of massacres in our schools is thoughts and prayers. I mean, to me, it's gone beyond Um, ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's appalling and infuriating. Um, You know, some of their other talking points, you often hear this uh, comment about, The the only thing that's going to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I hear that all the time from the NRA, from the Republicans, that the solution is to arm more people, to arm teachers, to have armed guards. And that is one of the biggest fallacies of all. I mean, here at Evaldi, you, you saw or you're hearing now in the reports 19 police officers armed and trained outside the school, supposedly the good guys who were supposed to stop the bad guy. And they did nothing because they were faced with a very dangerous situation, someone with an AR-15 rifle, and it was they would have been endangering their own safety. And instead of that good guy jumping in and saving the day, um, they didn't do anything because it's, the whole myth is ridiculous. And when you have more guns, when you have more armed civilians, people who aren't even trained to use them properly, you end up with more gun violence, you know, in altercations are more likely to lead escalate and lead to someone getting hurt. Guns are, you know, taken by people who are in a time of crisis and used to harm themselves. 80% of school shootings are kids who get unsecured guns out of the home and take them to school. So you know, this, this myth that they're selling that, you know, more guns is what's going to make us safer, that arming more civilians, more teachers is how we're going to prevent this. Actually, when you arm teachers, you increase the risk of kids in school being exposed to gun violence. When you have a gun in the home, you've dramatically increase your family's risk of being subjected to gun violence. So it's, it's, a, it's the opposite. They're peddling this this story—that's the opposite of what is true—and Americans are sort of falling for it. And this is, you know, it's one of the many reasons we're in the situation that we're in.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, forgive me for being a uh, pessimistic, Robin, but I know that the Senate is trying to cobble together a bill to when they come back from their most recent recess to address this. Uh, But when you look at uh, Senator Chris Murphy, who's leading the effort, uh, and they're talking about things like red flag laws, increasing uh, funding for mental health, but they're really not addressing the issue. So tell me, how optimistic are you that something will actually get done after this Senate recess? And do you think they're missing the mark by not addressing the gun issue
1: itself? Well, you know, Kevin, I'm an eternal optimist. You can't work on this issue without being an optimist. Um, It would be too much to bear. So I'm always hopeful that maybe this is the tipping point. Um, I don't, I haven't seen exactly what this compromise bill is that they're working on. I will tell you that if they compromise too much, it won't be worth its weight. So, you know, at the point that they want to pass a background check bill that has too many loopholes in it, like the original Brady background check bill of 1993, or they, you know, just fund mental health, but don't also fund gun regulation. It might sort of assuage people into thinking they're doing something, but it's not going to have enough impact, you know, in order for, legislation to actually begin to move the needle on gun violence in this country it has to be sturdy law so you know a background check bill which should be the first step in all of this needs to be you know comprehensive enough to actually work It has to apply to all gun sales. There needs to be a minimum number of gaps and loopholes in it if it's going to be effective at keeping guns out of the hands of people who are likely to do harm with them. So, you know, background checks, risk protective orders are an excellent tool, um, particularly for preventing suicide and mass shootings. I think they're they're useful to a degree, and I think they're a really important tool for law enforcement. I would love to see more states passing, you know they call them ERPO laws, or extreme risk protective order or red flag laws. Um, I think that would be a step in the right direction. I think raising the minimum age to purchase, especially things like AR-15s um, from 18 to 21 would be a really good set step. Safe storage laws, which require people to store guns safely when they're not being used, would go a long way to preventing accidents, suicides, um, mass shootings like many of the ones that we see, or at least shootings um, amongst young people. You know, gun gun violence and gun death is now the number one cause of death for children in America, age one to eighteen. So, you know, there's a lot we can do, at least to prevent that type of shooting. You know, gun violence. One of the things that's difficult about this conversation is that you're really talking about really three different kinds of gun violence. They do overlap a bit, but you have, you know, accidents, you have suicides, and you have homicides. And, um, you know, each of those are have different aspects to them. So, you know, suicide and the types of policies that we need to implement to prevent suicide is different from the types of policies that we want to consider in preventing homicide or accidents. They do overlap things like risk protective orders and safe storage cross over into multiple areas. But, you know, we have to be willing, part of what's so frustrating to me as a policy expert is to solve this problem, it's gonna take a little bit of nuance. We're gonna have to be willing to talk about the different policies that are available, what, how they work, what they do, what you, you know, something like risk protective orders, red flag laws are only effective if we also first have universal background checks, because one of the things those laws do is prevent someone who's in a time of crisis from buying guns. Well, if you don't have universal background checks, you can just go to a private seller or online or a gun show and buy guns there even if you're you have a protective order against you. So, you know, you we need to talk about and understand how these things fit together in a way that's effective and you very rarely hear anyone having that deeper level conversation.
0: Yeah, it's all interconnected, isn't
1: it? It really is.
0: I I, I know that your center says that uh, approximately uh, thirty thousand people uh, die of uh, gun violence every year, and as you know, that uh, it's particularly targeted in black and other communities of color. So, tell me, how do you think is the first step that the average citizen can get invested in the problem, and what do you think it's uh, more targeted in? Black
1: or other communities, if so, the number is actually up over the last three or four years. It was about thirty-two thousand people killed, but actually last year I think it was about forty-four thousand. So the number has gone up quite dramatically over the last three or four years. Very sadly, um, and when you talk about that forty-four thousand, about two-thirds of those people um, die are dying because of suicide. So, you know, that's an issue we can talk about separately. But putting that aside, when you look at homicide, and the number is something like Ten or 12 or 14,000 people um, who die from gun homicide every year, about half of those deaths are happening in black and brown communities and communities of color, particularly impacted communities where there's less resources. Um, And a lot of that has to do with not having access to opportunities and a lot of the gun violence in, in those communities is being driven by a very, very small number of individuals. I think one of the fallacies about gun violence in certain communities is that these are just violent communities. And that's absolutely not true. In fact, most of the gun violence, say, in a city like Oakland, which has had a lot of success um, with reducing it is driven by about half a percent of the population. So city like Oakland, under half a million residents, you know, the gun violence there is being driven by two or 300 people who are most at risk of shooting someone or being shot. Um, And that's where you really have the core problem. And they have found that when you, when you have targeted interventions, when you bring together community leaders, law enforcement outreach workers, um, you get everyone on the same page about intervening with that very, very small number of individuals They've, and bring resources to the equation. That's the key. You need to bring adequate resources to those intervention strategies. Um, you can reduce gun violence dramatically. Oakland was able to reduce gun violence by almost 50% in the seven years that when it started in around 2012 and when it was measured in 2020, it was about a 50% reduction because of those strategies. Now it's gone up, unfortunately, quite a lot because of COVID, um, but we're hoping it will be reduced again once those programs can kind of be at full force. So, you know, that part of the problem, and it is about lack of opportunity, lack of resources, and a flood of guns into those communities. And there's, you know, there's underlying issues about access to services, which, you know, create some trauma, there is violence over generations, which creates trauma, which sort of propagates the problem. But this is a problem that can be solved. And it actually can be solved with far less resources than people think the number I've heard is for every dollar invested in these programs, a city can save $7 in costs of, you know, you know, when you reduce shootings by X amount, you reduce law enforcement costs, hospitalization costs, court costs, you really ultimately investing in reducing the problem saves communities money, not to mention just the absolute sort of humanitarian impact, which I think is very, very important. So You know, that to me is a really important story that isn't being told enough and that I try to speak about as much as possible because these community violence interventions are effective and powerful and they're community-driven and community-based and they are transforming the neighborhoods where they're most effective.
0: Yeah, it all starts at the local level, doesn't
1: it? Always. Person-to-person is where we start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Robin, I also wanted to ask you about The assault weapons ban, you know, when it was allowed to expire, gun violence obviously was um, uh, increased. And I'm wondering if you have any hope that we may get back to a place where sensible politicians may look at instituting uh, a similar ban on assault uh, weapons because, you know, 18-year-olds shouldn't have acted. Now, this is just my personal opinion, but. 18 year old shouldn't have access to uh, AR-15. I mean, uh, you look at what happened in Uvalde, and he bought the shooter, and he bought them on his birthday. And uh, I, I'm just curious to know your thoughts on whether we can get to a place where our politics are so not territorial, where, where we don't vote on these sort of issues Uh,
1: down party line. So, you know, the first part of your question, which is, you know, whether we should or can or will, you know, institute some sort of regulation or restriction or ban on assault weapons, I mean, I, I can't believe we're not having a more robust conversation about that. And I, I hope that we will be in the coming weeks and months. Um, you know, these are guns that are not used for sports shooting. They're not used for hunting. They're not used for self-defense. These are guns. People like to collect because they're fun or because they make them feel powerful or because they find them an interesting machine. None of which to me are adequate reasons to have such weapons of war and death in the hands of untrained civilians. Um, and certainly they are the kinds of guns that should not be available to people under 21. You know, we know this, but your brain isn't even fully developed and matured until you're 25. So the, you know, you can't drink alcohol until you're 21. And yet we're allowing an 18 year old to buy and own a weapon that can cause the kind of destruction that we're seeing. It's astounding to me, you know, handguns are more regulated than AR-15s. You have to be 21 to buy a handgun in most places. So You know, this to me is an area where the absolute first thing we should be doing is raising the minimum age to buy assault weapons to 21. And then these are the types of guns that need to be properly registered, you need to have training, you should be forced to have a background check, no matter whether your state requires background checks on all gun sales. These are guns, the federal government should require to have background checks on. So, you know, there definitely needs to be at minimum, better regulation of these guns. And I would say, if I had my my way, I would restrict them seriously, because I don't think that there's any really valid argument for why it needs to be available to everyone. Maybe it's something we could restrict in a way that makes our communities a lot safer.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you look at uh, uh, the the role that President Biden has in this discussion, and, and you know, I think he said it was hopeful that this Senate would come up with a compromise. But Do you think he should be more vocal on this issue? Do you think he's done all he can using his political sort of will and power to make a dent in this issue?
1: You know, one of the hard things, and that's different about the United States than Canada, is that the president, without the support of both houses has limits on what he can do. You know, he can do certain things under his executive authority, but um, he can't necessarily push laws through. And on top of that, we have this filibuster rule, which requires more or less 60 votes in the Senate to get most things done. So, you know, he is in a difficult situation where just because he wants a legislation to go through doesn't mean he has the capacity to push it through he has done quite a few things um in his executive capacity including you know trying to regulate ghost guns and you know sort of a, a whole slew of other approaches to supporting better regulation but it's limited now he could be saying more he certainly does speak up against this issue i don't know enough about you know the ins and outs of washington dc to know how hard he's pushing to try and get things done i hope Hope in the coming weeks, we'll see him pushing harder, um, you know, kind of calling the Republican senators who are unwilling to even vote on these measures to the mat for their inaction. Um, You know, Obama tried and I know Biden's been trying, but, you know, I think he can do more and he should do more but it is people outside of the u.s you know our system it's not because it's not a parliamentary system it's a lot more limited the president doesn't have the same capacity um to move things the way they do in in other countries
0: yeah and and we were talking uh before we started recording it about uh uh, the steps that uh canada has taken to sort of curb this issue so what what is that the u.s a government can lauren about what we're doing about gun, gun violence on this side of the border.
1: I mean I, I think what you have in Canada is a lot more willingness to you know and Canadians I think do own quite a lot of guns. They they do you know hunting is a big Um, thing in Canada, people respect and appreciate owning guns, but there's just a so much more robust regulation around purchases around, um, you know, storage around what types of guns you can own. And now there's going to be even more Justin Trudeau has been talking about, you know, basically stopping new manufacture and transfer of handguns in Canada and assault weapons. And so, you know, I think the rest of the world when a tragedy happens, you know looks at the nature of the problem and takes steps to fix it and this issue you know Australia took a lot of steps to to regulate guns after the shooting at Port Arthur New Zealand took really dramatic steps after the shooting there a few years ago um, Scotland as well you know you have lots of countries now Canada who ha- own a lot of guns in private hands you know Switzerland Israel there's lots of countries around the world that have a lot of guns in private hands and they do not have the gun violence problem that the United States does because they regulate guns because individuals citizens understand that gun ownership isn't some you know absolute unfair right. It's something that is a privilege and they need to respect, you know, safety and they need to respect the rights of others to live safely, to own these guns. And I think that's why you see a different attitude and a different outcome. And the U.S. would be well served to be studying those systems and, you know, taking greater steps.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, we talked earlier about the Second Amendment not being absolute. And I'm sure that you are on a in the camp of uh, not want, wanting to infringe on law of binding citizens owning guns if they choose to do that. But there has to be a middle ground. And in fact, most people who own guns uh, want um, this to be done safely and effectively. So there has to be a middle ground where we, we protect Second Amendment rights also uh, address the issue of gun violence. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's a way to protect private gun ownership rights and regulate guns in a way that would dramatically reduce gun violence. We track about 50 different policies when it comes to gun regulation. And there are some states like California and New York and some others where there's very comprehensive and robust regulation in place and much much lower rates of gun violence in those states than states where there's no regulation so you know we know what those steps are we could talk about you know sales and purchases and types of guns and the way that people are responsible for their guns you know i i often suggest people look at the way we addressed car safety and car deaths you know back in the 50s and 60s um, lots and lots of people were dying from car accidents and there was a very comprehensive approach taken to reducing that on the public health model so everything from making cars safer you know airbags and steering columns and crumple zones and all the things that um, make a car make the car safer. Then they changed behaviors, you know, they made drunk driving, um, you know, they put more penalties on it, they made it less socially acceptable, they changed the way roads work and speed limits and bank curves and all the things we did to try and reduce the injuries from cars. Now we have more cars than ever on the roads in this country. But we've managed to reduce car death by 80% over the last 50 years. So you know that comprehensive approach, which looks at all the ways you can still have guns in our society, but have far less negative impact from them, um, which includes things like better mental health treatment in this country. It is not going to work alone without also regulating guns better, but we should of course be doing that also. Mental health support in, in this country and all countries is absolutely crucial to a healthy functioning society. And we should be doing a lot better. But that's not the solution alone to reducing gun violence. So, you know, really, a, a comprehensive public health approach is the only way we're going to over time see a reduction of this problem.
0: Yeah, and I have a, a couple of more questions for you. The first is, you know, Senator uh, Ted Cruz, he loves to seek out a camera when he wants to make a political talking point, but he doesn't actually seem interested in actually doing the job that he was elected to do, and, you know, you just listen to him uh, specifically, and the reason I, I bring him up is because his argument on this issue is so, for lack of a better word, flawed and uneducated, um, so I'm just wondering, when, when you have politicians uh, specifically like him adding th- their misinformed voice to the argument i'm wondering how uh, much more difficult does it make your job when you have politicians that are uh, trying to sell a different narrative to the public
1: it makes it very difficult if people aren't willing to Find out the truth for themselves. You know, if people are going to simply listen to misinformation, self-serving misinformation spouted by politicians, um, then they're and they're just going to believe it and not dig any deeper. It does create a problem because the basis for the whole conversation is misinformed. And that's not how you fix problems. Um, And this isn't an issue where it's a matter of my opinion or yours. There's certainly aspects of it that are opinions, but most of the conversation needs to happen in the realm of the truth and the facts and that's not what ted cruz cares about he doesn't go out there talking about research or statistics or hard facts he spouts a bunch of nonsense about the second amendment or about you know the good guy with the gun or whatever um, his approach for the day is and then walks away he doesn't actually have a meaningful conversation and i think people just you know aren't willing to dig in and learn the facts so they accept what he's saying as the truth or enough and they to kind of like wash their hands of it. Well, he says there's nothing we can do, so I want to believe him and I'm going to not worry about it. And I think that is part of the problem. You know, Americans are, I think, notoriously. Um, not willing to dig in, not willing to really learn and read and understand issues so we can have solutions. And that's, you know, you either need to elect people who are willing to do that, or you need to do it for yourself and hold them accountable. And in a lot of places in this country, neither one of those things is happening. There's almost a, a an elevation of ignorance on some things and simplicity, which is not serving us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Robin, my final question for you today has to do with your final message about addressing the urgency of gun violence. And if you had a message to any one of these parents that had to go through the agonizing pain of uh, burying their kid this week, what would you tell them?
1: Gosh, Kevin, I, you know, I have kids and I think about this all the time because of the work I do. And I, I honestly cannot fathom the depth of pain and, and sadness and devastation that these parents must be living with. You know, I, um, I talk a lot every day about not giving up about having hope that we can solve this problem about the need to remain angry and active and speak out and don't let this pass in a week or two and let, you know, get distracted and not be talking about it. And I would just say to those parents that particularly for those of us that are fighting on this issue we are never going to give up we are never going to stop fighting for a safer future for everyone's children so that other parents don't have to experience the pain and and trauma that they're going through right now so i say to americans in general who care about this issue do not give up call every day call your senators call your congressmen whether they're on our side in terms of change and regulation or not make those calls be loud, be heard, don't give up. You know, they're, that's what they're counting on. They're counting on us um, moving on to the next issue. And in, unless we're willing to fight for this, it won't change. So, you know, to let the parents know that we will do everything we can to fight for them, and we stand with them. And for the rest of the people out there who care about these families and care about what's happening and the safety of your own children, to be willing to stand up and fight, even though it's difficult and uncomfortable and hard, that that is the only way we're going to have a safer country in the future for our children's children.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Robin, tell me if People want to get connected with the Gifford Law Center on gun violence. What's the best way uh, they can get connected with the good work that you do?
1: So if you go online, www.giffords.org, there's lots of ways you can get involved, everything from joining our mailing list, donating money, showing up to events. There's a whole lot of rallies happening and protests and um, press conferences and hearings next week in Washington, D.C. for folks who live nearby and maybe want to be there for it. You know, there's more information about it on our website. You can certainly sign up to get involved over the long-term for For those of you out there who are gun owners, we have a Gun Owners Network. We're trying to make sure the voice of common sense, uh, gun owners who believe in regulation and understand that this is an issue that they want to be on the right side of, I urge you to join our Gun Owners Network. Um, So just to go to our website, and you'll find lots of information there, as well as ways to get involved um, and and to stand with us.
0: Terrific. Robin, well, I have to tell you I i thoroughly enjoyed diving deeper into this consequential issue of pre- uh, pre- preventing uh, gun violence. I want to thank you for the good work that you and your staff do on this issue and for joining me uh, this morning. It's most appreciated.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. It's been lovely talking to you.